Thanks, Andy. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all here today in person and online as well. I just really appreciate you all coming today. Wow, it's been, a, it's been just a really great morning, hasn't it, with a baptism and celebrating our summer day camp program uh, this past week. Just a wonderful time together so far. And, and now let's continue with our teaching series on the parables of Jesus by looking at Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 to 16, the parable of the workers in the vineyard. Uh, you can look it up on your phone if you wish, or on page 1529 in the Bible, in the red Bible under the chair in front of you. And uh, let me just read this scripture passage for us right now. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came, and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more, but each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. All right, so let's be honest. We don't like the parable of the workers in the vineyard. We don't. It annoys us. It just seems so unfair because in our hearts, we're there in that vineyard with those first hired men sweating in the heat of a 12-hour day. And we just can't believe, in fact, we are outraged that the rest of the work crew, including the last hired who don't even break a sweat, all get paid the same day's wages and they receive their pay first while the exhausted men who've worked all day stand waiting. We live in a first-come, first-served, look-out-for-number-one world. It's every man for himself, we say, or every woman for that matter. We live in a world where the first are, well, number one. And the last don't count, don't matter. It was that way back in ancient Palestine in the time of Jesus, and it's that way today. From birth, we're told to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, or as our Brazilian friends like to say in Portuguese, of course, hold yourself by your own shoelaces. 
We even spiritualize this idea that success comes through personal effort by claiming God helps those who help themselves. And if we don't measure up, if we let go of those shoelaces, well, we are gone and forgotten, aren't we? From our earliest years, these values are hammered into us. The early bird gets the worm. He who hesitates is lost. There is no such thing as a free lunch. Or as our Indian friends similarly say in Hindi, japatis for free, by which they mean the opposite, actually, that japatis, bread, don't come for free, you must earn it. And as we go through life, we receive lessons in tough love. I mean, let's be honest. We as parents, loving though we are, sometimes maybe push our kids too much to succeed, to be number one, the best behaved, the best athlete, best student, the model child, and our personal sense of worth takes a hit if they don't measure up to our standards. We all do this, don't we? And how about professional sports, or amateur sport for that matter, where winning isn't everything, it's the only thing, with fierce competition until one team basks in the shouts of, we're number one, while we are the champions, blasts from the speakers in the arena, and the losing team quietly disappears, exhausted, defeated, forgotten. And what about the work world? Companies and bosses roll out all kinds of perks and benefits to motivate their workers to be number one in how much they get done so that their business is number one on the bottom line. Take Ford Motor Company. Once upon a time, so I'm told, Ford graded its workers on a scale of one, clerks and secretaries, to 27, chair of the board. A grade nine job got you an outside parking space. Grade 13 came with a window view and plants. At grade 16, you got your own office with a private bathroom, no less, and on it went. Now there's a company worth working for. In contrast, Google today, whether at the Googleplex in Silicon Valley, California, or in Bengaluru, India, or Lagos, Nigeria, or Sao Paulo, Brazil, more or less follows the same model of Googliness, as Googlers like to call it, where it's all warm and fuzzy and fun, and everyone is dressed super casual, and collaboration, we're in it together, is the buzzword, and the perks and benefits for everyone are lavish. Flexible hours, free meals and snacks, exercise rooms, climbing walls, nap pods, hairdressers on site, you name it. Though I'm told that some perks went away during COVID and have never come back. Concerns about the bottom line, management claims. So, but boring old Ford or cool and edgy Google, it all comes down to the same thing, right? Get the workers to number one so that the company is number one with power and money over all their competitors. And speaking of money, it really is kind of where our hearts are much of the time, quite honestly. Now don't get me wrong, this isn't a knock on rich people. I'm as open as the next person to having a $100 bill in my pocket, and I absolutely admire business people, the genius of business thinking that brings ideas and systems and people together to accomplish something innovative and profitable. And I know many, many wealthy people who are incredibly humble and compassionate and wealthy in their generosity, too. But this money thing can get out of hand for all of us, for all of us, until we each well and truly believe that money talks. Money makes the world go round. Or as our Mandarin Chinese friends say, money makes the mare go. In other words, it gets the horse moving. 
which explains why we tend to put wealthy people on a pedestal higher than the rest of us. Number one, Forbes, Bloomberg, CEO World, take a look at any of those sources online and you'll quickly discover lists of the 50 or 100 or 200 richest people in Africa, China, India, Canada, Latin America. You know, Forbes annually profiles in glowing terms what it calls the Forbes 400, the 400 richest people in America, whom it describes as, quote, the country's most exclusive club. Did you hear that? Exclusive, set apart from the rest of us, almost as gods whom we should aspire to be like and worship. Look, folks, we live in a world where self-made is the ideal, where the drive and ambition to come out on top is praised and rewarded even if we have to step over bodies to get there. Or, to put it in the words of Jesus, we live in a world where the first are glorified and the last simply don't matter. But hey, it's the world we live in, and it's a tough place, and we all scramble to survive in it, probably making far too many compromises along the way. And then we walk in the doors of church and hear a story about some incredibly misguided landowner who seems to have no sweet clue about how to properly motivate the workers in his vineyard, who certainly has no idea whatsoever about fair compensation for hours worked, who is just plain generous for apparently no reason at all, and we just don't get it because it's too far removed from the reality we all live in. So what's really going on in this parable? Well, you need to know that Jesus tells this story just after he's met up with a rich young man in Matthew chapter 19. You probably know the story. This young guy with money in his pockets comes to Jesus and asks, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? He's genuinely puzzled. As far as he's concerned, he's lived a blameless life in keeping with God's commandments. What do I still lack, he asks. To which Jesus replies, chapter 19, verse 21, If you want to be perfect, go. Sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Now this hits a spiritual nerve, because this young man is very rich indeed, and he can't bring himself to give it all away. Then Jesus turns to his disciples and makes that now famous comment about logical impossibilities, that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 24, the disciples are astonished. You see, Jewish belief at the time held that wealth was a sign of God's favor and blessing. The more godly you were, the richer you got. Come to think of it, those of us in church world today maybe sometimes think that way too. So for the disciples, the rich getting into heaven was a sure thing, guaranteed. Then along comes Jesus who claims the opposite, that camels maybe even have a better shot at it than they do. No wonder the disciples are confused and just a bit afraid because, my goodness, if the rich won't necessarily get in, then all bets are off. Maybe no one, themselves included, stands any chance of getting into heaven. But then the wheels begin to turn, and the disciples get all puffy, proud, and judgmental. You can almost hear them saying to themselves, yeah, you know, Jesus is right. If you're unwilling to give up anything, like that rich young guy, then you really shouldn't receive anything. But if you're willing to give up everything like we did, 
hope you're paying attention, Jesus, then you really should receive a blessing. And before you know it, blunt and impulsive Peter, undoubtedly speaking for all the disciples, blurts it straight out. Verse 27, Master, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? It's the natural question to ask, you know, what's in it for me? Look out for number one world. To which Jesus responds with gentleness and love. He knows that Peter and the others have made incredible sacrifices to follow him, and he assures them in verses 28 and 29 of God's favor and richest blessings now and in the eternal life to come. But then he adds a kicker. Chapter 19, verse 30. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. The same words that Jesus uses to end the parable of the workers in the vineyard in chapter 20. So we need to understand this parable as Jesus' way of explaining what he means by all this talk of first and last. More specifically, this parable is Jesus' response to the disciples' what's-in-it-for-me prideful attitude. They've got a sinful me problem going on. Jesus tells the story to correct them and us in those times when wrong-hearted selfishness and wrong-minded ambition compel us to walk away from God instead of walking humbly with our God. So let's go inside this story now and discover what Jesus actually teaches his disciples and us too. First of all, the parable describes something typical in the Palestine of Jesus' day. It was the September grape harvest, a race against the clock to get the crop in before October rains came and ruined it. Workers were in demand from sunrise to sunset, even if they could only give an hour. And we know that there were lots of workers available. In fact, more than enough. Palestine was experiencing an economic depression. Think the Great Depression of the 1930s or the global financial crisis 15 years ago when so many people permanently lost their jobs. Something similar was happening in Palestine, and for the same reason, greed. An out-of-control, look-out-for-number-one desire on the part of some to get even richer. Money and life was being drained out of people in Palestine through high taxes paid to Rome, double tithes, taxes in disguise, paid to maintain the temple in Jerusalem, and extortion money paid to corrupt tax collectors. And life was particularly harsh in Judea, where Jesus told the story. By all accounts, it was on the verge of economic collapse. So village markets in Judea were full of day laborers who would arrive at sunrise with lunch and tools in hand, desperate for work. We need to know this, because it forces us to park our prejudices at the door. Because when chapter 20, verses 3 and 6 says that there were men standing around doing nothing, it doesn't mean that they were lazy, no-good characters who didn't want to work. No, it means that there were more men who needed work than there were jobs. Now, if that much about this story fits the times, what is unusual is the owner of the vineyard. He's unusual because he's the hero of the story. Landowners in Palestine didn't have a reputation for generosity. They were part of a web of connections and corruption that held together the top 15% of the population, while the other 85% lived desperate lives. But this landowner is different. 
He's different in another way, too, because he hires the workers himself. We know he has a foreman who oversees work in the vineyard because this man hands out the pay at the end of the day, and this man would typically do the hiring, too. But in this story, the owner himself keeps tabs on the harvest and goes and hires more workers every few hours. So this hands-on landowner arrives at the marketplace at 6 a.m., the aggressive workers, those who know that to hesitate is to lose, surge towards him, negotiating, until he agrees on a contract for the day's work. These are the workers we admire, don't we? The early birds who get the jobs, build skills, and become more and more marketable. Then, the landowner returns to hire more workers at morning coffee break, lunchtime, and afternoon tea. There's no negotiating with these workers. He simply gives them his word that he'll do right by them. Verse 4. You also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. Then the landowner returns one more time, just before quitting time, and still finds men standing around. He asks them why they're still there, and listens to their despairing reply, because no one has hired us. It's the desperate cry of men who think their families will go hungry that night. And the landowner simply says, Go and work in my vineyard. Just go. No contract, no word. Just go and work. You know, the parable of the workers in the vineyard is an outrageous story because it doesn't fit the pattern of how we think life should work in this world. But do you want to hear something even more outrageous? God doesn't care what we think. Well, he does care, but he's out to change our hearts and our minds. Remember, Jesus told the story as a word of correction to anyone who is so full of pride that they just know that they are spiritually together and have what it takes to get through life and to heaven. To those people, to you and to me, Jesus says, no, you don't have it together. No, you don't have what it takes. And guess what? You never will. In fact, the only way, the only way to eternal life is through my amazing grace. And how do we receive this grace? According to this story, it starts with getting to know who God really is. The landowner, the hero, is the God character in this story. And he's a pretty remarkable guy. He takes the initiative. He repeatedly goes himself to find and hire workers. He also has unshakable integrity. He keeps his contract and his word, but he even goes beyond integrity. He is more than fair, coming through even for those who join at quitting time. And at the end of the day, he rewards all his workers completely the same. He also has faith in his workers. Contract, handshake, or just an invitation to work, it doesn't matter because he believes they'll show up to work and they do. And he delights in generosity, paying most of his workers more than their due, not because they've earned it or deserve it. No, he's simply good-hearted and just wants to surprise them with a gift. And finally, he is compassionate and moved by suffering. He isn't blind to the desperate circumstances around him. He isn't deaf to the cries of men longing for work and in the end goes and hires them all at full pay. These are admirable qualities to have in a boss, but they are life-changing qualities to have 
in a God who's concerned with sinners and souls. This story shows us a good and loving God who draws all sinners to himself without reservation and with outrageous abandon and keeps his promises to them and more and surprises those who trust him in ways beyond imagining and cares for them completely, no strings attached. This is a God of amazing grace, earth-shattering grace. And make no mistake, this story isn't just playing at make-believe. It's not saying, what if God were like this? No, it speaks the truth. We know this because the one who tells this story is Jesus Christ, God in the flesh who has come to reveal God's goodness to us. He is the owner of the vineyard who goes searching for the lost and desperate himself and who looks on them with love and who invites them to experience the gracious harvest time of God. Matthew chapter 9, verses 36 to 38. Let's read these verses out loud together. They're on the screen. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Jesus wants us all to experience God's harvest in our own lives and then to receive his invitation to work the harvest with him. But we still have one nagging problem, don't we? We haven't made sense of those first hired contract workers. I think we can figure this out once we answer the question, how will you and I respond to God's amazing grace? Like those first hired workers, we are almost trained or conditioned by our school of hard knocks world to know our rights and to demand them. So when we encounter a situation where some hardworking people receive what they agree to, while others are rewarded the same for apparently doing nothing, we cry, unfair. But deep down, is that really why those contract workers were angry? Look again at verse 12, which makes plain that the workers aren't claiming that the owner cheated them. No, their complaint is, you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. Equal to us. Hmm. Now what does that mean? Those are the words of prideful men who are absolutely convinced that they are number one. They are the good and responsible workers, a notch above anyone else and deserving of special treatment. Which brings us full circle to spiritual pride. This story uncovers something deep in ourselves that, quite honestly, we're probably unwilling to face. We all want to be more than others in every way. Our own sense of worth and importance demands that we keep others inferior to ourselves. We have no interest in generosity because it takes away our privilege, our basis for being better by making everyone equal in God's eyes. But I believe the ultimate lesson of this story is this, that if before God's amazing grace, our souls are torn open and we are revealed for the prideful people we actually are, then we are finally just where God wants us to be. Because when we come face to face with God's amazing grace, we discover that although we might think we are the first hired contract workers, we are actually those hired late or last. 
All of us, without reservation, without exception, are lost and desperate sinners who must lean on God's promises and call on his mercies. And that is the best possible place to be because God is good. God is loving. God is gracious. He will honor our trust in him by blessing us in ways we don't deserve nor could ever imagine. That's the rock-bottom truth of this story. Told by Jesus, God in the flesh, whose compassion and mercy took him to the cross for us. Philip Yancey wrote a wonderful book a while back entitled, What's So Amazing About Grace? There's a statement in that book which I think speaks powerfully to the truth of the story we've looked at today. You'll find it on the screen. It's a bit long and it's edgy. It might make us uncomfortable, but what Yancey has to say is worth thinking about. Let's read it out loud together. Grace means there is nothing we can do to make God love us more. No amount of spiritual calisthenics and renunciations, no amount of knowledge gained from seminaries and divinity schools, no amount of crusading on behalf of righteous causes. And grace means there is nothing we can do to make God love us less. No amount of racism or pride or pornography or adultery or even murder. Grace means that God already loves us as much as an infinite God can possibly love. God already loves us as much as an infinite God, a God without limits, can possibly love. Now that's an outrageous amount of love. And this God, heart wide open, offers each of us grace. Not because we've earned it in a first come, first served, look out for number one world. And even if we think we don't deserve it, haven't measured up, feel as if we always come in last. No, God's grace is a generous gift that he wants each of us to receive, no strings attached. So that we can know his blessings in a life made new, a fresh start, leaving all that has come before behind as we start our lives all over again. Now that's amazing. And it all begins with Jesus who once told a story about a good and generous God who owns a vineyard and who then showed us what God is actually like as he died on a cross for us. Will you welcome Jesus into your heart today and receive God's amazing grace? Please do and start your life all over again. Let's pray together. Gracious God, life is just really tough sometimes. And there's no doubt that we are often lost and desperate people in a hard and loveless world. But Lord, you know that, and you want to change that. Because you are a good God who, whose grace reaches to everyone with outrageous abandon, and who loves each one of us completely, unconditionally, without limits. And we know this, Lord, because of Jesus, who showed up in our world and offered us your promises and your mercies, the gift of amazing grace at the foot of the cross. And for this, we are forever grateful. Amen.